Our Bible reading today is from 1, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 11, and I shall be reading the whole of the chapter. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent to pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the auction, oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. And they said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The people then said to Samuel, who was it that asked? Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us, so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all Israel, Israelites held a great celebration. 
Thanks for that, Martin. A great passage. And as I said, uh, get stuck into it at home because there is so much in these chapters. But, uh, yeah, we just won't have time to look at today. So let's see if this is going to work. No, you might have to drive it for me. Let's see if this is going to work, Jared. MacBook's open. Technology is great when it works, not when it not. Well, uh, join me. Let's pray before we, uh, before we get stuck in. Father God, we thank you and praise you that you give us your word, that you have preserved these uh, ancient histories for us, the histories uh, not just of any people, but of your people and your interactions with them. And so as we, uh, we look at this uh, historical record from 3,000 odd years ago, uh, Lord, open our hearts, open our minds. We pray that you would speak to us, help me to speak clearly and faithfully, and we pray that we'll all respond in just the right way, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Rightio. Well, uh, when someone refuses to listen to advice, uh, what should we do? Uh, what do we do when we give someone some advice and they just don't want to listen to it? Uh, well, I'm tempted uh, to say, so be it, it's on your own head. Uh, has anyone had that experience? Uh, I've got a, uh, a friend uh, who has asked me for advice uh, on a number of things. Uh, in one particular situation, I, I said really clearly, uh, don't do that. I think this is a bad idea, don't do it. Uh, they decided to do it anyway. Uh, and I don't want to say sure enough because often my advice is wrong. But in this particular case, uh, it didn't go according to plan. Uh, and before you know it, they're coming back wanting help to fix all these problems. Uh, and not only was I tempted, but I actually ended up uh, saying, look, I'm, I'm not gonna bail you out. You made this decision. You, you have to uh, eat the fruit of your actions, as I think someone else said to, that, to me. You've gotta taste the bit of fruit of your decisions, Liam. Uh, and, and, and saying, look, you've got, you have to bear the consequences of this. I can't keep bailing you out when you uh, stop when you don't listen to advice. Uh, and I, I think uh, maybe you've had that experience, someone's done it to you and you've gone, yeah, actually that was good for me. Uh, I needed to learn the consequences. I'm glad they didn't keep bailing me out. Maybe you've had that experience with someone else uh, where you thought, no, no, they're, they're gonna have to bear these consequences themselves. Um, but, but that's how I'm pretty well always tempted to behave uh, when somebody doesn't listen to my advice and does something and it ends up going badly. But what is fascinating is that, especially in today's passage, uh, in 1 Samuel 9 through to 12, God does the exact opposite. God does the exact opposite. Uh, because remember, uh, from last week, Israel asked for a king, and by asking for a king, they rejected God in the process. I'll just stop that bumping on the mic lead. That a bit better? Yeah, thanks, Jared. Um, so so they, they, by asking for a gig, they, they rejected God, and I think we've got a slide showing what they asked for. Um, they said, we want a king like the other nations. We don't want to be our own nation. We want to be like the other nations, a king to lead us, a king to go before us, a king to fight for us. Those three phrases that come up again and again in the Old Testament, they're what God did for the people. So it's very clearly, they might not have realised it, but it was very clearly a rejection of, uh, of God when they were asking for a king. Uh, and while, you know, in response to that, I think they deserved for God to say, well, I'm out, I'm out, you're on your own. You don't want me? You want to be like the other nations? You want a king to lead you and go before you and save you? Well, it's on your own heads. 
You know, you're on your own. You can eat the fruit of your decisions. But God doesn't do that. He actually gives them a king, and and not just any old king. He gives them a saving king. We just read that, didn't we, in chapter 11. Um, God shows grace by giving Saul, uh, and and he delivers them. Uh, He sends them a saviour that they needed right at that time. And they do really need a saviour. Uh, Because right at this time in Israel, uh, on the map, you're looking at the east side of the Jordan. uh, And that's the the part of Israel they're looking at. Uh, And that whole uh, chunk of Israel uh, was was besieged by this fellow called Nahash. I know him as Nahash the eye gouger. Uh, And uh, you can see there. So next thing, this isn't work at all. Jared, you might just turn that down a little bit. We're getting a, a... bit of a ring. Um, so Nahash the eye gouger, was, was, he, he came to Jabesh Gilead, we read, read about that, he said, well the condition of surrender is this, I'm going to gouge out one eye of every man, you, you're going to lose it. Uh, and this wasn't the first time he'd done that. Uh, see, we have some extra information, and Jared's going to have to hit it again for me, we'll fix this for next week, uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they were discovered in 50 years before Jesus, uh, BC 50. Um, and, and there's this little bit of information about this time in Israel. And this extra bit of information, Nahash had been doing this all over the east side of the Jordan. This wasn't the first time he'd done that. In fact, 7,000 Israelite soldiers had escaped from a battle and run to Jabesh Gilead, and they were the only men on the whole east side of the Jordan who had two eyes. Nahash had scooped out everyone. That, so. That's the sort of oppression they were under. Because we, we read, oh, the Israelites were oppressed. And you think, oh, yeah, I know what it's like to be oppressed. No, we don't. This, he, he'd scooped out. Can you imagine that? Any, any fighting age man here would have one eye. One eye, no depth perception. Uh, you, you couldn't see an enemy coming from that side. And, and it was explicitly so that, so that Israel would be disgraced. So that God couldn't raise up a saviour for them. Uh, And so that is what's going on. Uh, It's really terrible. And we saw that last week. And instead of crying out to God, they come up with their own plan and they they ask for a king like the nations. So what they should have done is cried out to Yahweh, we are sorry, we need to rescue us, deliver us. But they didn't. They came up with their own plan, their own solution and said, God, we want you to do it. We want to be like the nations. We need a king. And so while God has every right to say, you've got all the good ideas, let's see how you go with your own good ideas. He doesn't. He gives them a saviour. And that's what we read in chapter 11. Delivers them despite their rejection. And it's not just that God gave them a better king than they asked for. See, what's really interesting in these chapters is who God uses to save his people. See, at a glance through this chapter, chapter 11, uh, and my memory from uh, kids' storybooks growing up, all I knew about Saul was he was really tall and he was really impressive, uh, or the NIV says handsome. Um, so that, that's all I can remember about Saul. And then you read chapter 11, you think, you get this picture of this giant Ammonite crusher coming in to deliver the people. You think, well, he's the obvious choice for a saviour, isn't he? He naturally must have been just like that. But that's not what happened. God gave them, he actually gave them a weak king and transformed him to save, which is our first point. Uh, God's transforming uh, saving power. And we're going to flick back through uh, chapter 9 to 11. We'll have to flick through a couple of slides there. Uh, And first thing we find about Saul is that he he looks kind of impressive. 
Um, so his dad is named Kish. He's a wealthy Benjamite. And look there in verse uh, 2. Uh, Kish has a son named Saul, uh, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And it's like one of those dating shows, isn't it? Uh, where he was a head taller than everyone else. That's how Saul is introduced. Uh, handsome or impressive. Tall and impressive on the outside. So, so he looks the goods. He looks like a warrior. He looks like a king. He looks like a saviour. But inside, he's indecisive and uncertain. And we saw that in the whole donkey saga with the lost donkeys. He goes off looking for his dad's donkeys with a servant. By the way, Saul is 30 at this age. He's not just an 11-year-old learning the ropes. He's 30 years old. He's got a servant. And the whole story, he's kind of indecisive. The servant's the one taking the lead. The servant's the one the lead. The servant's the one saying, let's see the prophet. I've got the silver. And Saul's sort of passive. And you think, oh, that doesn't seem right for this big, tall, strapping son of a wealthy Benjamite. Uh, and what's worse, when he gets selected as the king, God arranged for his selection through the casting of lots. And they, they cast the lots. They find out it's Benjamin. They find out it's Kish's family. They find out it's Saul. And they ask, where is Saul? Well, here's what happens. Um, so they inquire of the Lord, has the man come here yet? Where is he? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself amongst the supplies. Did you notice that in, uh, in that chapter? He's hiding amongst the hay bales. You know, this, this strapping 30-year-old king, who's meant to be impressive, is hiding. He's hiding. Uh, and then uh, after his crowning, after his commissioning as a king, uh, there's a few people who say, we don't want Saul as king over us. And what does Saul do? They despise Saul, they bought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. It's an ominous end to the chapter, isn't it? You know, the Israelites, who, remember, who were their enemies at this stage? Nahash, the eye gouger. And Saul can't even confront a few grumbling Israelites. How is this man going to save us? He was hiding in the baggage train. He can't even confront the, the people who say, oh, we don't want him as king. How, how is he going to confront a brutal warlord? See, that's the person God selected. That's the person God chose. I think particularly because he wanted to change him. And that's what happens when we flick on and we see in chapter 11, uh, when the word of Nahash and his brutality comes, what's it say? Verse 6, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Uh, he, he is mighty all of a sudden. Remember, the, the last chapter, he was hiding in the baggage train. And now he's burning with anger, ready to pick up his sword and go and deliver his Benjamite cousins. And it's the spirit who does that. In fact, there's a Hebrew writing structure called a chiasm. Uh, and it's a, in English, we don't really do it, but it's sort of a poetic structure where a, a whole chapter, a whole chunk is structured that the middle point, uh, so the, the start and the finish mirror, and then the next point and the next point mirror, and the next point and the next point mirror, and right in the middle, whatever's the center of the chiasm is the main point. And it's just a, a Hebrew way of highlighting it. And that's how this chapter looks. Uh, there's all this mirroring of these things, and right at the middle is verse 6. So if it wasn't obvious enough just on a normal reading, uh, a Hebrew reader would have seen this structure and gone, ah, verse 6 is the focus. What am I meant to notice in this structure? 
What am I meant to notice in this chapter? Well, it's the spirit, God's spirit, rushing on Saul. That's what makes the difference. That is what transforms him. But it's not just Saul who's transformed in this chapter. The people are transformed. Uh, the people of Gibeah. Now, and, and we, we, we see that there. Now, you, we, in, we read the, the, the town, the Gibeah of Saul. Uh, I don't know if Gibeah uh, tickled your ears a bit. You thought, oh, okay, where, where have I heard Gibeah before? Now, just a little reminder, it's, it's not a nice story from Judges. In fact, I reckon it's one of the, probably the most heinous account in Judges, a book that is just full of horrendous things. Gibeah is the town where they raped a concubine to death. That's Gibeah. That's the town that is now the centre of this story, a Gibeah of Saul. Same town, Gibeah. Gibeah, and that's how evil and wicked and horrendous they were. Um, and, and we're meant to notice that parallel here, uh, because even when you uh, when when you read uh, when when it was read out to us that Saul chopped up the oxen and sent them out over Israel, well, do you remember from Judges what the Levite did to try and rouse Israel to this evil? He cut up that dead concubine and sent her out to Israel. Uh, this is meant to be a parallel. We're meant to notice this. We're meant to notice this is the same people. This is the same town. This is the same place. Yet in Judges, it's the place where they were so wicked. They had, they had such little regard for the Lord that they just did what they want. These are horrendous things. And, and yet now there's this transformation and they, they unite as one and, and they're fearing the Lord. The terror of the Lord or the fear of the Lord has fallen on them and changed them. And they're uniting as one to go and save their fellow Israelites. There was no fear of the Lord in Gibeah before in Judges. And now there is. There's a, there's a transformation, even the way it's written, that the terror of the Lord fell on them. It, it, it's, it's meant to evoke this kind of supernatural overcoming that God broke down whatever was going on in their hearts to get their attention and get them to do the right thing. He aligned them properly with who he was, who they should fear and respect most, who they should follow, who they should obey. And when, they're, when that changed in their hearts, their, their actions changed too. They go from weeping and scared when they first hear about Jabesh Gilead to uniting as one. God transforms. That's this first point. He transforms Saul from this scaredy cat hiding in the hay bales to the spirit rushing on him and he's a war leader defeating the Ammonites. He transformed the people, Gibeah, from this heinous town to the sort of people who unite as one to deliver their, their fellow Israelites. Uh, and that brings us to our second major point in this passage, is the merging of guilt and grace. We'll flick on there a bit, Jared. Uh, guilt and grace. Uh, and we come to chapter 12 to have a look at this. We didn't read it. I encourage you to have another look at home. Uh, but what we have is a scene that's sort of reminiscent of a courtroom scene. Um, so, so Samuel is addressing the people. They've just won this mighty battle. He gathers them all together and he charges them. And it's the kind of wedding language. It's may the Lord deal with me ever so severely. It's saying, hey, this, this is serious. I want to mark this as a formal occasion. Um, so he said, have I ever cheated or oppressed you? No, you haven't. So there's this kind of back and forward. Verse five, Samuel said to them, 
the Lord is witness against you and also against his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. He is my witness, they said. So it's this whole courtroom scene. And then Samuel proceeds to lay out for them their history, a, a, a bridged version, but it's just the highlights of the worst bits. He basically says, at every point, our people, the Israelites, your forefathers have rejected God. Every chance they've had, a, they've had a chance to trust God or rebel against God, they've chosen to rebel against God. They rejected him in the wilderness. They rejected him in the battles again and again and again. And then he says, and you have done the same thing. He says it outright, by asking for a king, you have rejected God. And if you don't believe me, he says, I'll send you a sign. And we've got a slide. Uh, he says, if you don't believe me, I'm going I'm to send a sign, a thunderstorm in the harvest time. And now there's a reason harvest time is harvest time. It's because it doesn't rain in harvest time. Uh, and so that's, so that's why it's so miraculous. You just don't get storms in harvest time in Israel. It's incredibly unusual. And Samuel says, I want to show you what's going to happen and calls down this storm and the people are just overcome. They go, wow, this is it. Uh, and then they say, verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die for we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. They finally get it, don't they? They, they finally realise what they've done in demanding a king. And they, they just think God's, God's going to smite us, and he should. He's going to open up the earth and we'll just fall into it. He's done it before. That's, that's what we deserve. But oh, maybe, Samuel, can you pray? We deserve, we've done this evil. No excuses. We've done this evil. Pray to the Lord. And they don't even call him our Lord. That's how, that's how low they are. Pray to your Lord. And here's what Samuel says, God's words. Uh, this, this is just pretty incredible. Verse 20. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. But for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I'll teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. It's pretty incredible. In the face of this courtroom scene. You, you have sinned. You've, you've always sinned. And they just own it. On top of all our other sins, we've done this evil. And he says, do not be afraid. That's not what you expect in a courtroom. When the sentence is read out, you are guilty. You have done this thing. It is evil. And the judge says, don't be afraid. It just doesn't happen, does it? It's not what they deserve. But it's also not a free pass to just, oh, yeah, just carry on doing evil, is it? It's a really beautiful mix of forgiveness, of a wiped slate, of a come to God. Don't, don't, don't fear and run away because you've done this wrong thing. Fear and come to God. But you've got to repent. You've got to stop chasing after those idols. You've got to stop worshipping all these other things. You've got to stop just chasing sin. 
and come to the God who has mercy. Uh, in the song Amazing Grace, uh, we often sing it, and there's a reason. It's got really rich words that help us. Uh, there's a song that says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" See, I, I think the Israelites, it was a great mercy on Israel that God allowed them to fear. So if they'd failed to repent, if they didn't fear the Lord, if they said, well, stuff you, God, I know you say we sin, but I don't care. I don't fear you. I'm just going to go on living my own way. Uh, they, they would never have repented. They could never have received God's forgiveness. He wouldn't have saved them. But he, he gave them grace. And grace uh, is just a, a one word for undeserved generosity. Whenever you read grace or hear grace, that's what it is. It was undeserved generosity. They didn't deserve for God to, to put his terror on them so that they would fear. They didn't deserve for God to change their hearts so they could see how sinful they were. But he did. And that was a mercy. That was generous. And it's a mercy when God does it for us, when he helps us to see how, how sinful and rebellious we are and fear God and put God in his right place. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. But what's the rest of that sentence? And grace, my fear relieved. That, that's what Samuel says, isn't it? You have done this wickedness. You should be afraid. But don't be afraid. But don't fear. God will forgive you if you come to him in repentance. If you come to him in repentance. You know, that song could have been uh, paraphrased from Psalm 2. Uh, one of my favourite psalms that I think shows this mix of grace and fear. Uh, in Psalm 2, the psalmist is talking about the kings who are, it's, it says they're, they're raging against the Lord and against his anointed. I'll pick it up in verse 10, where the psalmist is urging the rebellious people of the world. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry. And your way will lead to destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Mm. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Doesn't that feel like a, wow, I was not expecting that last line. Kiss the son lest he be angry. The all-powerful Jesus, creator, sustainer, judge of the universe. His wrath, his righteous anger can flare up in a moment. Run to him. Run to him. There is no other place to hide. For he forgives. For he forgives. He offers refuge. And this is actually our first application in the for us. This, this merging of guilt and grace. Because at the cross, we, we see the courtroom, just like in Samuel, uh, Samuel chapter 12, where God looks out at humanity, he addresses us, and he says, you are, you are guilty. You have done all this evil. You have rebelled against God. You haven't given him the honour and love and respect he deserves. I haven't. That's the courtroom. And in the face of that, the only appropriate response is, I have done all this evil. And where the judgment should come, grace reigns. You, you are guilty. You have done all this evil. Come and be forgiven. Stop, stop finding satisfaction in all those other things. Stop looking to things, looking to people 
looking to things of the world to satisfy, to save. Stop running after them. Turn, repent, and look to God for those things. And you will receive mercy. We do have to come to him in repentance. Now, you might be thinking like, I think when I read and hear this, that sounds great, but I keep failing. (laughs) That sounds like a great offer, but I can't even repent properly. I can't even do the right thing to get that forgiveness. I can't turn around. But this, this forgiveness is not offered on the basis of how good a candidate for repentance you are. You know, when uh, organisations or the government offer scholarships for different things, uh, and they look through and they work out, is this person a good candidate for this, for this gift, for this scholarship? They're trying to work out, will you do well? Have you proved yourself in the past? God doesn't do that. He saved Israel. Saul of Gibeah, that town? He didn't look around, oh, they're good candidates for restoration. That's not how God works. It's not offered on the basis of who we are and how likely we are to repent and turn out good. It's offered on the basis of who he is. That's what he said through Samuel. It's for the sake of his holy name that he doesn't want to turn away from us. It's because of who God is. He doesn't just leave us the same. He doesn't say, I'll give you forgiveness, but you'd better pull your socks up. You better tidy yourself up. You better turn around, turn your life around, and don't you dare come back unless you've repented of that sin. That's, he doesn't just leave us on our own. He doesn't show us our sin and then forgive us. Uh, he, he also transforms us. He doesn't require that transformation to come to him. That's a mistake we often make to think, oh, well, I'll just get these few things in my life sorted out and then I'll come to God. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before asking for forgiveness. That, that, that comes well before we've been cleaned up. But he does do this transforming work. He did it for Saul, from hiding in the hay bales to this mighty war leader. He did it for the people of Gibeah. Wow. He did it for the Apostle Peter. Mel stepped us through it just a few weeks ago as we finished up John. From, from this, this sort of man who was so scared of what would happen that he denied even knowing Jesus to a serving girl, to standing up a couple of chapters later in the Sanhedrin, in the, in the same group of people who'd arranged for Jesus to be crucified. And he says, you know what? Say what you want. I'm going to pre- keep preaching about Jesus. It's nothing. What happened in between? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit rushed on Saul. The Spirit rushed on Peter and changed him. And that's, the, that's what happens with us. Often it doesn't feel as dramatic as Peter or Saul. But there is that change, that transformation. We get help in this. And in fact, God actually loves using people like us who need that help. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul's talking about this thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. We don't know if it was a physical ailment, some problem, some sin that he couldn't deal with. We don't know what it was. But he begged God three times, he said, I beg this to be taken away. And God says, no, I'm not taking this away. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Elsewhere, he talks about uh, this treasure, the gospel, the power of God, being like in a, in a pottery jar, a jar of clay. That was the plastic cup of the ancient world. You buy something at the markets, they give it to you in a clay pot because it's disposable. And Paul says, I'm, I'm just a clay pot. I'm the Chinese takeaway container. Uh, and, and that's to show how good and amazing God is. See, would, would Saul's victory have been so astounding if Saul hadn't started off as a shivering, scaredy cat in the baggage train? If he wasn't like that, if he was always big and strong and a warrior, you'd say, oh, yeah, well, of course Saul's. No, no, we say God did that. God did that. With the people of Gibeah rallying together as one to cross the Jordan and deliver their fellow countrymen. Would that be so astounding if they were always upright, moral people who always put aside their own wants for the good of others? They were horrendous people with a horrendous track record. God did that. Would Peter's uh, statements in the New Testament, his leadership, his boldness, been so dramatic if he didn't start off as this... This bold to make statements, but when the crux comes, he folds. So God did that. That wasn't Peter in the sand. That was God. And would it be so obvious that it's God working if we didn't start off as who we are naturally? Jars of clay. People who often, in my experience personally, often feel tempted to not share the gospel because I don't want to cause a fuss who attempted to, to not say that thing, to not befriend that person, because I'm feeling selfish. That's who I am naturally. And so when, when the gospel does come out, when I am loving, when I am selfless in some small way, I hope it's obvious, like Paul prayed, that it's obvious that it's God's work. Because when I am weak, then I am strong, because it's God who's at work within me. We're going to sing now. We're going to jump up some musos. Come on up. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. And as we do, let's, uh, let's admit to one another, to God, who we are, that we need this grace. We're not saying amazing justice, how sweet the sound. I so deserve this. No, it's grace. And let's celebrate this together. Thanks, guys. And then I'll come back up for question time. Uh, if you've got one. Yeah, any, any questions about today? No medical questions, as usual. Ben, you're in first. Oh, well, I'll try and repeat your six questions. And, uh, we'll see how we go. So the crux of the question is, thank you, uh, for, especially for those on YouTube and on the hearing loop. You might not have heard that. Uh, so when the spirit rushes on Saul, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he then acts in anger. What could that be separate? Could it be the spirit rushed and then Saul did his own thing and acted in anger? So is it necessarily a good thing that he asked in anger? Question. Um, and then chops up the beasts and sends them all over. So is that, a, is that connected? Is it not connected? And then how does that relate to today for those who are Christians? Does the spirit still kind of rush upon people in a moment like we see here with Saul or is it more of a continual thing? Was that the question? Okay.
Well, uh, we'll move on. I got the quick. No, I better an well, have a crack at answering. Um, uh, the short answer is I can't, with a hundred percent conviction, say it's definitely connected or it's definitely not. Uh, however, the text itself, if I step out of our modern sort of sensibility, like so, it just feels in our world and our culture just like, whoa, how could God move someone to, in a rush of anger, slaughter his oxen and send them out and threaten Israel that thus will be done to the oxen of those who don't come and fight me? It just feels like, whoa. Now, when was the last time one of you guys sacrificed an animal on the altar at the tabernacle? Hopefully not recently. I'm worried if you are. So, so we're in a different time. This is an era where, where they were commanded when they sinned to take an animal to the, to, the, to the tabernacle, slaughter it, watch its blood flow out, burn its fat. Uh, Passover, they were commanded to choose the best lamb, put it in their house for 10 days, get to know this lamb. It's not just a random lamb, you get to know it. And then you kill it, put the blood around, and you remember, this is a sign that this lamb died for me. That's the, that's the era. So I think there's... So, so when I step out of that and think, okay, just looking at the text... I'd struggle to read that as two separate things. The spirit rushed on him and in this anger he, he did it. So it, it to me reads pretty strongly as if the spirit was moving him to do this thing. In fact, the spirit rushing is a very Samson-esque phrase. So go back to Judges, Samson's the judge that I think three times in Samson life, it says the spirit rushed on him and he performed this feat. So it's it's kind of Samson-esque. Samson wasn't a good guy in a whole range of ways, but it, it seems to be that's the way God acted to deliver. Uh, was Saul um, in control? I actually uh, read, read something today. Um, uh, Rob forwarded me on. Someone had, had messaged that, that this showed that Saul was both savvy and ruthless by slaughtering the oxen and reminding everyone that, hey, this is Gibeah, where the concubine was, was chopped up and set out from as a almost shaming the nation. I don't think the story paints Saul as savvy and ruthless. He's bumbling around looking for donkeys, hoping his servant has a, has a thing. He's hiding in the baggage train. So I, the text leads me to say, this is actually God's spirit moving Saul, I think deliberately to make that um, illusion or even stronger to, to what happened in Gibeah, Gibeah those years before. Um, so that's just what I reckon, but the text doesn't say, and it was the Spirit who did this, although I think it almost says that just because it's the way it's structured. Uh, how does the Spirit operate today? So yeah, in the Old Testament, the Spirit acted on particular people. Obviously, he acted on a whole range of people and brought them to repentance. But, but particularly, God's Spirit came on prophets, on priests, on kings, on war leaders, uh, and stayed with them for a period of time. Uh, and, and that seems to be how, how it happened. But it didn't happen in the general populace. Whereas when we come to the New Testament, where we're told, hey, if you're a Christian, you've come to Jesus, you, you get the spirit at that moment of, of just handing yourself over to Jesus. Uh, but at different points, so we, we read in Acts, I think it was in Malta, uh, uh, Paul, who was Saul, different one, uh, was preaching and, and it says, and filled with the spirit, Paul preached in stuff away, and it happens a couple of times where Paul, and filled with the Spirit. We go, well, didn't he already have the Spirit? Because he got it when he was converted. And yet he's filled with the Spirit, and I guess you could say, and the Spirit rushed on Paul, and he preached in such a way. 
Um, so it seems that, yes, yeah, so for Christians, we have a, an ongoing indwelling of the Spirit who helps our conscience, who intercedes for us, who guides us. But at different moments, uh, he will and does sort of uh, rush on us or fill us. I mean, we're already full, but yeah, it's, it's, it's this overwhelm us and, and help. And so maybe you've had the experience where, uh, yeah, you, you, you've been in a conversation or you're praying, you think, wow, where did, where did that come from? Where did those words came, come from? And you think, wow, that's the Spirit moving me in a, in a special way. It might be, might be a whole, whole range of things. So uh, do we still have agency? Yes. Is God doing it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, long answer. Might not have answered all your questions or even any of them. But um, I'm going to go with Carol first, then Brendan. So, yep, Carol. Isn't there righteous anger, Liam? Is there righteous anger? Thank you, Carol. Um, oh, that's a tricky one. I... Uh, I, I reckon, biblically, so the New Testament, uh, Jesus uh, says in uh, his Sermon on the Mount, in, in, in one place he says, if anyone is angry without cause, and in, a, in one of the other Gospels it's just trans recorded as if anyone is angry, they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't be. I think there is the hypothetical possibility of righteous anger, hypothetical, because it's got to be at exactly the right time, towards exactly the right people, in exactly the right measure, not too much, not too little, expressed in exactly the right, well, I'm, I'm done. Could, can anyone fulfill all of those in the heat of the moment? The right time, the right way, the right amount to the right person. So, so Jesus could have righteous anger, absolutely, because he's God. Could, could any human? Technically, yes. I don't trust myself, and frankly, I don't trust anyone, to, to fulfill all those and be sure you are expressing it exactly the right way and exactly the right time to exactly the right person. Because we, we're not omnipotent. We don't know everything. We don't know all the details. So how can you respond appropriately? So I would say I, I think it's appropriate to feel strong emotions and appropriate to feel sort of that anger when we see injustice or when we see something. But... All too often I hear Christians justifying their actions by, oh, well, that was done out of righteous anger. I want to be really wary against justifying anything I do by saying, well, I was righteous in my anger there. Uh, whereas, is it James, in your anger, do not sin? Or be angry, do not sin? So that's saying, hey, feel the feeling and then get rid of it because you are, you are human and you're probably going to sin. That's what I feel that's saying. Thanks, Carol. Brendan. Hey, I was just reminded from um, Ben's question, and it sort of built on the last two, of when Jesus drove out the people in the temple. Mm. It says, I, th I think, correct me if I'm wrong, it says he was filled with the Spirit mm. when he did this. Yeah, I can't remember if he was uh, particularly filled with the Spirit. It's a little bit different with Jesus. Well, it's very different with Jesus. because. <laughs> um, but 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 but, uh, but there there are parallels absolutely. Part, like Jesus had the visible Spirit coming to him at his baptism as a visible sign that his ministry has started. He's going forward with this kind of in fullness of the Spirit in his ministry. So he never acted alone, and he was God is yeah. So but yeah, absolutely. So so that's I think that's one example of where. I think whether it says it or not, was Jesus full of the Spirit as as He acted like that to to cleanse? Abs yeah, he, he he was. Yeah, thanks, Brendan. 
one to look up. I'm going to call it there. Can I, can I just do a follow-up? Oh, good on and you, Mel. Thanks, Ben, for asking that question. <laughs> um, just, and you would have seen in that text that you got, probably. But the Levites sent out um, the pieces of the concubine to get them to go and attack the Benjamites. And Samuel's, uh, sorry, not Samuel, Saul's a Benjamite. Yep. And he actually sends uh, ox out to... Uh, to unify Israel to come and save, save the, the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah. So you see any significance? Oh, absolutely. And um, yes, come, coming up now. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's this beautiful circle of almost redemption. And I think it's it's showing the same way those opposites of, uh, you know, Gibeah were doing this heinous thing. Now they're uniting. They were summoned to destroy Benjamin. Now they're summoned to save Benjamin. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Thanks, ma'am.